0: Few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Your opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the Word this evening. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening in the freedom in this nation to study your Word and to freely proclaim the truths that are in your Word. And that as we study your word, we come to understand the eternal principles that apply not only in our lives spiritually, but that there are uh, principles that are taught in your word that address every issue of of thought, every issue of life, so that it is in your word that we have a framework for understanding how to uh, live in your creation, that just as you have created the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them, you have created the... Uh, social, economic, political laws, social laws that uh, cannot be broken you have established the uh, divine institutions that are the basic uh, framework and foundation for a stable uh, prosperous uh, society and when these are violated the ultimate result is the collapse of the culture that has violated those divine institutions now fathers we continue our study uh this evening we pray that you'd help us to understand what your word teaches and see how this relates to our own views and understanding as well as to uh the issues that face us in our country we pray this in christ's name amen well we're continuing a study we began probably six or seven weeks ago. I've lost track of how long we have been in this study, but tonight is going to be the end of this stage of this topical study. I'll probably come back to it some uh, at a future time as we go through the book of Acts. But the uh, foundation for this comes at the end of Acts chapter 4, just so there's a, an orientation to the book of Acts here. We get these progress reports by Luke at at various stages as we read uh, read through Acts. And this is one of those progress reports beginning in verse 32. And Luke says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of that country of Cyprus, having land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, there are two individuals in our generation over the last 30 years. Jim Wallace is one. He has a ministry called Sojourner's Ministry. He is often reported in the, uh, by the media as an evangelical but he is so far to the left of the edge of evangelicalism that that really uh, stretches the credulity to call him an evangelical. And he has to look far to his right with a telescope to see the edge of evangelicalism. And he is an advisor to the current administration. On, on many policies, and so because he is ca- called an evangelical, um, many people just get all excited about that. Uh, he is a pure socialist. Another individual that also wrote, has written in this area, it was a man by the name of Ron Sider. I've got a couple of quotes from Sider tonight, who wrote a book back in the late, late 70s called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And again, he he purported a that, that uh, the ult- ultimately what the Bible teaches about economics is is pure pure socialism. And uh, he changed. By the late 90s, he, um, he had changed a lot of his views as a result of some maturity and further study, but Jim Wallace uh, has not. Uh, so we um, looked at this passage because this passage, as well as a passage in... Um, a couple of passages in the Gospels are passages that are frequently gone to as the foundation or support for a sort of communist or communal living that was taught by Jesus Christ. And as we study the scriptures, we see that that is just uh, absolutely a distortion of what the, what the Bible teaches. Now, what I've done over the last few weeks is just try to start with Genesis and go through passages in the Old Testament looking at what is said about economics. Now, we know the Bible's not primarily a history textbook or a uh, a textbook on biology or a textbook on economics, but it touches on all of these things. And we believe in a view of the Scripture that it is the infallible Word of God and that it is revealed by God as the ultimate author of Scripture who guaranteed that all that is within the Scripture is without error, whether it addresses spiritual things or the things of God or whether it is addressing things of history. And it's always fascinating to me to read or hear those who have critiqued uh, scripture and make claims that well there are errors here and errors there that they completely ignore or give no indication that they have ever read some of the incredibly brilliant minds that evangelicalism has produced in the 20th century that have answered all of these rather trite arguments and extremely sophisticated intellectual uh, ways. One of the foremost defenders was a, a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen, who was one of the founders of Westminster Theological Seminary. And that took place in, in 19. He really rose to the forefront in the 20s and 30s uh, as uh, the Presbyterian, Southern Presbyterian denomination was drifting uh, into liberalism. And when Princeton Seminary reorganized Machen and several others, including a second man named Robert Dick Wilson left Princeton and started a new seminary. It was a Cal- the Calvinistic seminary, uh, Presbyterian, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Now, this other person I just mentioned, Robert Dick Wilson, has got to be one of the most brilliant minds that has ever been produced in, in Christian circles. He made it a point. He He was one of these people that sat down, understood what his capabilities were when he was a young man, charted out his life so that he would spend the first 20 years of his adult life getting trained, then the first and then the next 20 studying, and then the next 20 writing. He mastered over 38 languages, most of which were related to uh, ancient languages, Hebrew, Akkadian, Ugaritic, uh, Egyptian, uh, many of those ancient languages related to the study of the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is usually the focal point of the attack on the uh, on, on the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, and so he wanted to be such an expert in each of these areas and on every document, uh, every Akkadian document, Babylonian document, every original text of every myth that was that was written on the law code of Hammurabi. He had read all of these in the original, and he would then debate the liberals who claimed that Scripture had error. And he, he, he was, you could not defeat him, because he would start quoting from all of these original source documents in the original languages, which his opponents could not even understand. And so, but the the minds like that are never read by the by the those who challenge the veracity of the Word of God, who challenge the accuracy of, of of the Scriptures, and their their positions, their books, their writings are are just ignored. But if we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, a revelation from God to man about His creation. Then it addresses every area of his creation in some way it will not have errors, either historical or economical or biological. Just think if he if the God who did what Genesis one says he did, if there is a God who created everything in the universe down to the all of the subatomic particles, holds everything together. Uh, that the God who created all of the molecules and life and runs, governs, holds together all of the universe, if that God who has that power cannot communicate without error what he wants to communicate, then you have a real problem. So it only stands to reason that if you have a God who is the creator of everything in the universe, that that God is able to communicate precisely what he wants to communicate. He is able to create his creatures so that they can understand what he is communicating. And he can guarantee that what he communicates is then preserved and passed on without error. The trouble is, human beings don't like what he says, so they have to try to figure out how to reinterpret it, redefine it, try to find little things that they think are contradictions, and then uh, uh, then they... feel convinced and confident that they have somehow uh, destroyed something that is indestructible. What I pointed out was that as we went through the early parts of Genesis, that I established seven basic principles that we learned from the first part of Genesis all the way into the Mosaic Law that provide a, a boundary line, for, for economics, the Bible isn't a textbook on capitalism, a textbook on any kind of particular political philosophy, but it gives all this, this evidence there. These, these are the benchmarks, and if you connect the dots, you develop a fence, and anything that go, operates within that fence, within that boundary, is, is biblical and consistent with God's divine laws. The first is starting over here at about the ten o 'clock position is personal responsibility and accountability under divine institution number one that every individual is accountable for their own life for the decisions they make in their own life, and they are responsible to take care of themselves. Second thing that we saw is under the category of labor, Adam was given responsibility in the garden to maintain the garden to guard the garden to protect the garden and that he had the right to enjoy the the rewards of his personal labor. Uh, We also saw that value was not necessarily intrinsic, but was imputed, which forms the background for understanding uh, imputation of righteousness. We saw the value of private property and private ownership of property, as that is uh, protected by the Eighth Commandment, "...thou shalt not steal." We also saw that uh, the Bible recognized the validity of wealth accumulation without putting limits on wealth accumulation. That nothing, never does the Bible indicate that someone is too wealthy. In fact, the way the Bible handled uh, inheritance laws was so that families could continue to accumulate and amass tremendous wealth, passing it on from one generation to another. No inheritance laws, no property tax laws. We saw that there was a recognition uh, in the Mosaic Law that the government had a limited responsibility to provide a safety net for widows and orphans. This was the tithe, one tithe that was taken up every three years. There were three distinct tithes in the Mosaic Law. The third was one taken every, every three years, so it's a much smaller amount of money. It had to last for three years. And then we spent the last few weeks talking about the uh, seventh one, the personal individual compassion, which was the primary safety net, the responsibility to take care of the widows, the orphans, those who were less fortunate, taking care of the poor, was the responsibility of each individual. It was not the responsibility of the government. And there was a clear warning given in the Old Testament, which I want to get into this evening that if government gets very large, then the trajectory of government, because of the inherent depravity of the human heart and the trend towards power accumulation, the trajectory of government uh, is towards an increased taxation and the reduction of freedom. So let's turn to First Samuel chapter 8 to look at uh, the principles that are given here. First Samuel chapter 8. There's a spiritual condition at this time, and that is that we're still in a period, or actually we've come out of the period of the judges, but we're not in the period of the king yet. This is at the very end of the period known as the period of the judges covered in the book of Judges. The book of Ruth also takes place in the book of Judges, and the first eight chapters of uh, 1 Samuel also take place in the book of Judges, and the last judge is actually Samuel. And Samuel now is quite old and his sons are, uh, all be, have all become apostate and his sons are not responsible and the people recognize that, that they cannot rule the nation. They do not want to uh, follow their, their leadership. We read in chapter 8 verse 1, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Verse 3, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Now, one of the things that we saw throughout the Mosaic law was this emphasis on justice and righteousness in dealing with people economically, that it is just and righteous for people to own property, to control their property to make as much money as they can from their property and to pass that wealth on to the next generation. That is righteous, according to, the, uh, according to the Mosaic Law. That, According to the Mosaic Law, the poor and the rich were to be dealt with in the same way. In a court of law, uh, the judges were not to take into account the economic status or the social status, the political power of the people before them. If they were poor, uh, that was not to be a factor. If they were rich, that was not to be a factor. They were not to be given favoritism if they were wealthy. They were not to be given a pseudo form of mercy or compassion if they were poor. That neither would be righteous according to the Torah, according to the Mosaic law. So now we see this situation that has developed where uh, Samuel's sons have turned their back on, on the Lord and on the training that he gave them. Let me say just in terms of a parenthesis, one thing that I have noticed in the, uh, in the last uh, decade or so is that we have an epidemic in this nation of the next generation of children who have rejected what their parents have stood for, rejected the truth of Scripture. I see this more every year where you have this estrangement between parents and children. I had an email today from a lady who has uh, children who will not talk to her, think she's crazy, all kinds of things are going on because of her commitment to the Word. Her husband stands by her, uh, her grandchildren stand by her, but that next generation have rejected the word. Last week, as I mentioned, I was out uh, with some friends hunting. One of the other men that was there was a pastor of a, of a church, a uh, Baptist church, First Baptist in Navasota. Another man was a man who was actually one of my counselors when I was a kid at Campanile, and he's held a variety of positions in education throughout his career. He's in his early 70s now. He's been a coach, he's been a teacher, he's been a curriculum director, he's been a principal, a counselor. He's held just about every kind of position you can hold in the school system. Plus, during the last 40 or 50 years, he's worked with kids at Camp Nile. And I asked the question, I said, is it just me or is this something that is just becoming a, a, a pandemic in our nation that that this there are more and more families where the parents are committed to the truth of God's Word and their children won't have anything to do with them. And they all agreed that they have never seen it, this country in the state it's in today, with the large number of families, Christian families where the kids were raised right. And we're not talking about parents who, who failed. Our parents fail in some way or another because they're sinners, but we're not talking about irresponsible parents. We're talking about parents who did everything that they could, trying to be the best they could, and their children have completely rejected everything that they were taught and everything that they stood for. And that's exactly what we have here in the case with uh, Samuel. Remember, the theme in the book of Judges was that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so they became the, they, 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 they let the culture of relativism seduce them. And there is probably nothing more seductive to the sin nature than a culture of relativism and a culture of socialism. Because both relativism and socialism absolve the individual of any responsibility or accountability for their life. That goes right back to that first divine institution of personal responsibility and personal accountability. And it is so seductive to think that somehow I don't have to be held responsible for the decisions that I make. I don't have to be accountable for the decisions uh, that I make. And I can just rely upon somebody else to take care of me from cradle to grave, and that, that if I make bad decisions... If I make sinful decisions or foolish decisions, then it really doesn't matter. Uh, there, there's, there's no accountability. And when you adopt that same view, you also, what goes along with it is a rejection of any kind of absolutes. Everything is relative. So his sons got sucked in to that just as those younger people in our generation, and many older people as well, have been sucked in to that whole worldview of relativism. And I've had some discussions with some of you, and uh, I believe that um, socialism is a basic uh, orientation of the sin nature because in socialism uh, you're not responsible for taking care of yourself. You're you're going to expect somebody else to take care of you and to um, solve your problems, and you don't have to pursue excellence to take care of yourself. So that is what has happened with his son. So the elders of Israel gathered together. They, they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they say, You're old. We need uh, a change in administration, and we need a king. The, the key statement is verse 5. Now uh, give us a socialist system to judge us just like all the European nations. Oh, wait a minute. It didn't say that, did it? Same principle. Said now, make, I just wanted to see if everybody was listening. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. We want to be like everybody else. We don't want God to be our king. That's essentially what they're saying is God will tell Sam, Samuel. Samuel gets a little angry and depressed about this. Goes to the Lord and the Lord says, don't get so upset about it. They're not rejecting you. They are uh, rejecting me. And uh, God says to him, starting in verse uh, 7, he says, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. See, it's a spiritual problem. That's the foundation here is it starts with a rejection of the God, the authority of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It starts with the rejection of the absolutes that he has revealed, and now we just want to do it like all the other pagans. So God goes on to say, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me, and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. What I'll, If we get there tonight in the next 30, 35 minutes, what I want to hope to show you is that the core issue, the reason you have wealth and prosperity in some parts of this world and you have poverty in other parts of this world, has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with theological belief. And that has been documented in a study and in a paper that was written in the early 80s by a man at the uh, London um, School of Economics. So God says to verse 9, listen to their voice. And so then Samuel relays all these words to the people, and in verse 11 he tells the people what the consequences of this are going to be. You've just asked for big government. Let's put it in everyday language. You've just asked for big government, Instead of having freedom with limited government, when you get a king, you're going to have big government. And this is what big government is characterized by. Increased taxation, uh, taking away your freedom, taking away your opportunities. First thing he says is, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariot." So he's going to increase the military, and you have to feed all, and supply all of these soldiers, so that means increased taxes. He will appoint captains over his thousands, captains over his fifties, who said some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. The government now is in the business of production. Uh, harvest, uh, growing food, agriculture is now the responsibility of the government rather than the individual. Uh, He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. Verse 14, And he will take the best of your fields. Now this is different from what happens in verse 15. This is eminent domain, where the government now is going to say, Oh, look, you have a great piece of land there. We can really manage that better as the government than you can as an individual. You have a great business there. We can make it more profitable and more equitable if we run it than if... You run it as a private owner. So they'll take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. That is theft by government. But because the government is operating under authority, there's no authorization here for revolt against the government. God doesn't say at the end of this now, when they do this, you can overthrow the king. He's saying, no, what the result of this is, is you're reaping the consequences of of the bad decisions of your fellow citizens. And so what you're going to get is what you deserve, and don't revolt. There's no justification there. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain. Now he's going to increase taxation. Now this is considered oppressive. They already have a tax system under the Mosaic Law where 10% is taken to take care of the bureaucracy, of the theocracy, the priests and the Levites. Another 10% went to an annual celebration. Then every third year, so that's 20%, every third year you had another... Ten uh, percent taken to take care of the widows and the orphans now they 're adding another ten percent, so that means thirty percent annually, forty percent every third year. This is considered oppressive now let 's just compare that to the tax code that we have in the u s tax code in the u s uh, for many people, if you, especially if you 're deemed wealthy, which is getting lower every year uh, by the way that 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 reduction in income is impacting other other things, I learned this last week that if you are a 40, 501c3 organization, a nonprofit, that, that applies to all missionary organizations. It doesn't apply to churches. One of the greatest lies the government and the IRS has foisted on churches is the lie that they have to uh, be a 501c3 to be nonprofit. That is, that is just not true. A church is guaranteed to be non-taxable by the First Amendment. Now, what do you want the guarantee of your freedom to be, the First Amendment or the IRS? I'm not going to ask for everybody to have a show of hands here for who's in favor of the IRS. Churches are non profit, non taxable, because of the First Amendment, not because of 501c3. 501c3 is a category invented by the IRS tax code for other educational religious. Uh, organizations. So Dean Bible Ministries, James Myers Ministries, Campus Crusade for Christ, the Navigators, all these kinds of ministries have to be 501c3 because they're not churches. So they have to be 501c3. If your income used to be if that 501c3 entity had an income in a, a million dollars or more than they had to fill out the long form uh, I, I forget the number, but it, the, the long form, which details how they're spending every dime. Then it went to 500,000 and 250,000, and now it's at 200,000, and next year it'll be at 100,000. So it just makes it more and more difficult for small ministries to ha- do what they do because they have to spend a lot of money to get a, an accountant, to hire good accountants, skillful accountants who know. Nonprofit tax code to fill these things out uh, for them so they don't get in trouble with the IRS. It's just another form of, of tax oppression. And uh, this is what is warned about here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So it's considered 30% is considered oppressive taxation. Just remember that next time you get to vote on federal uh Federal officers. He will take a tenth of your grain your vintage and give it to his officers and servants, and he will take your male servants and your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. Verse 16. He, and in verse 17, he'll take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. What's the trajectory here? The trajectory here is the government gets legalized theft, violating the Eighth Commandment because of power. But the solution is, verse 18, this is what happens. You will cry out in that day because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves. Hmm. Whose responsibility is it that you get the government that you have? Well, you say, well, not me. I voted for the other party. Yeah, but that doesn't matter. You have the president you deserve. You have the Congress you deserve. You have chosen it. Because when God says this, he's addressing everybody in Israel, and we know that there's at least one person there who's not in favor of having a king, don't we? And that's Samuel. Nevertheless, the people, so after all of this warning, it says you'll cry out in that day because of your kingdom, you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. I'm starting to underline passages like this. I found two in Isaiah the other day. Because how many people have you ever heard say, you know, God always listens to people when they pray. You horrible, horrible fundamentalist. You say that if you're not a Christian, God won't listen to you. Well, here's an example of Israelites, God's chosen people. God's not going to listen to their prayer. There are many places in Scripture that says God's not going to listen to somebody's prayer. Uh, so this idea that just because you're a human being and you think well of yourself doesn't mean God's going to listen to anything you say. He'll turn a deaf ear to it using an anthropomorphism. So God goes on to say, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They're exercising divine institution, number one, in being irresponsible. They don't want to take responsibility for their bad decisions, and they're still going to take bad decisions, and they're going to insist on having a king. No, they say, we will have a king over us that we may also be like all of the European socialist nations around us. Same thing, that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. It's not our responsibility, it's going to be the king. No, they, they turn a deaf ear to the warning. So what we see here is that in the Old Testament a specific warning against the encroachment of government in the area of economics and taxation And that that is the trend of history. That is the normal trajectory of every government. How many governments in history before uh, 1776 had the kind of freedom that we have here? None. We are an aberration. An aberration in history. But, um, and that's changing. Pretty soon we'll lose our, our freedoms here too. All right, let's go to the New Testament. New Testament. A couple of things I want to look at are passages that show this, the importance and the validity of investment and personal accountability. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Now let's go to uh, yeah, that's right. Matthew 25:14. Matthew 25:14, called the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents, it is uh, somewhat similar to a, another parable that is recorded in uh, Luke 19:11. 11. Uh, there's many of the kingdom parables that, that the Lord used. Now, I'm not focusing on the, the, the real intent of this parable, but the spiritual truth that the Lord is using in this parable is built on the recognition of of the validity of certain business practices. And that's the point that we're looking at here is that if these business practices weren't valid, then the spiritual principle that he's talking about wouldn't be valid. So the spiritual principle that comes across from the parable is based on a valid, acceptable, legitimate, righteous business practice. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Now in this parable, the one who, man who departs to a far, far country is analogous to God. His own servants are analogous to the Israelites, to the nation of Israel, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. What he's going to point out here is the failure of utilizing what God has given you, but that's not the point we want to focus on here. So he he brings out his servants, and to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. The principle here is that God is the ultimate owner of our resources, and he distributes the talents and the wealth as he will. So he is the ultimate determiner of things, and some have more than others. And because God distributes it that way, it is by definition righteous. And to, uh, verse 16, then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. Now, this is what's interesting because in all of the distortions of the usury law, some of which I talked about in the last couple of lessons uh, that came across in the Middle Ages that... Uh, that you couldn't make money by investing money. That was mm-hmm. basically the idea. Couldn't charge interest. I pointed out that use all the usury passages all had to do with charging interest when you're loaning money to destitute people, to those who are impoverished and don't have any way to get, get give the money back uh, or to pay it back with the excessive interest. I pointed out that according to one writer, Uh, The interest, that normal interest in Israel at that time was about 20% in the ancient world. So here there's a recognition of the legitimacy of using money to make money, being a trader, investing in something and then selling it. And so the first one uh, trades and uh, doubles his money, uses his five talents to make five more talents. The one who had two talents also gains two more. But the one who received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. He doesn't invest it. At least he didn't gamble it away. But he does nothing with it. He doesn't invest his money. He doesn't utilize that or exploit that which his master had given him. Verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered me To me five talents, look, I have gained five more. And the Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. God praises him because he doubled his money. Now we go through uh, the rest of the uh, parable he praises the one who took the two talents and doubled his money. And then he comes to the last one in verse twenty four, and he says, Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But the Lord said, you wicked and lazy servant. He didn't say, you poor, impoverished person. You just got born into the wrong socioeconomic level. You were a victim of prejudice. You didn't get to go to the right schools. So we're going to take the five talents the first guy made and we're going to give them to you. See, that's what the modern liberal social democrat the Christian socialist in Europe would do. That's the theory. But that's not what Jesus did. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Everybody you talk to is going to say Jesus was a good man. I dare you, sometime when you're talking to somebody, to ask them if they think Jesus was a good man. Get in a political discussion with him, and then turn around and use this and say, according to Jesus, when somebody is poor and they don't do anything to improve themselves, that instead of taking from the rich and giving to the poor, you take what the poor person has left and you give it to the rich. Because that's what's going on in this passage. Jesus said, the, the Lord, first of all, reprimands the servant, says, you're wicked and lazy. You're irresponsible and you don't have a right to compassion or anything. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. See, that would violate the usury laws according to the way it was misunderstood by the Roman Catholics in the Middle Ages. Clearly, Jesus understood that charging interest was valid and legitimate under the Mosaic Law. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him. Give it to him who has ten talents. Boy, this would go over well. We ought to preach this sermon to the Occupy Wall Street people. Y'all leave. We're going to take everything you brought with you, and we're just going to give it down to the people at Wall Street because you guys are irresponsible for being here. You're wicked and evil, so we're taking everything you have, and we're giving it to the wealthy on Wall Street. This goes way beyond being a Republican. This is righteousness. Therefore, take his talent from him, give it to the one who has ten talents, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Punishment for irresponsibility. In other words, there, there's under the first divine institution, there's personal accountability. And if you're lazy and you're inept, and you waste what God has given you, then there are negative consequences, not positive consequences, of the government coming in, patting you on the back of the hand and saying, okay, we're going to waste hundreds of thousands of dollars on trying to educate you and giving you everything and providing everything for you. Now, there's another passage Turn back about five chapters to Matthew 20, Verses 1 through 16, and we'll learn some principles about employers and the rights of employers to determine wages. Not wage and price controls, not a minimum wage law, but there's so much here economically. Again, it's a teaching about the kingdom of heaven, but I'm going to look at the economics that are are the foundation for the the legitimacy of the, the parable. For the king of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So he gets up at five o'clock because he's industrious and he knows that if you're going to earn, he's read the Proverbs, which we looked at last time, that if you're going to live and earn, you're going to get up early and work. It's not going to be a little sleep, a little upholding of the hands to slumber. He's going to get up early and work. So he goes out and he hires laborers for his vineyard. Now, when the next verse says, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day. Now, a denarius was not a lot of money, but it was about the common everyday laborers' uh, earnings. So he agrees with them. That means they negotiated the deal. Now, if you're a laborer, you want a job that day, you want to get the best deal you can get, and this was the best deal that they could get. Uh, It also indicates that what underlies this is a contract and the legitimacy of a contract between the employee and the employer and an agreed upon uh, an agreed upon wage. They have the responsibility to say, "Okay, I'm not going to work for that. But they don't. They accept it. So he agrees with them for a denarius a day and he sent them into the vineyard. Then about the third hour, so that's at 6 in the morning, at 9 a.m., he goes back to the street corner where the laborers are hanging out, and uh, hopefully they were documented, not undocumented workers. And he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard. Whatever is right, I will give you. Now, they don't negotiate for, for a wage. He just says, at the end of the day, I'll pay you what is right. So they went. And then about the sixth hour, which would be about noon, and the ninth hour, uh, he did likewise. So at 6 a.m. he has the original negotiation, then he hires more workers at 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 p.m. At the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle. So this is now at 5 p.m. Workday ends at 6. He says, why have you been standing here idle all day? They say, because no one hired us. So he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to a steward, call the laborers in and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. So the ones he hired at 5 o'clock are the first ones to get paid. And when they came, they each received a denarius. So the ones who only worked an hour were going to get paid the same thing that the ones who had worked for 12 hours had negotiated for. Now that didn't make them feel real good they were having issues with the landowner now. But the principle is the landowner has every right to determine what the wage is, and the one who works for it had the right initially, the first ones hired, to negotiate for that wage, and they could have said no. So the um, when, they, uh, when the first ones came, they supposed that they would receive more. They had an assumption that was based on the concept that, that they were due something that they had not negotiated for. They had unrealistic expectations. The road to hell is paved with unrealistic expectations, right alongside the good intentions. Verse 11, When they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only an hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But... He answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours, go your way. I wish to give the last man the same as you. In other words, a landowner has the responsibility to make up his, uh, make his decision. So what we see in both of these parables is an emphasis on personal responsibility. And I don't care what you call it. I don't care how you try to cloak it in compassion, it's pseudo-compassion. All of these laws that we have passed in the last 60 or 70 years, from Social Security up to the last health care bill, are built on shifting responsibility from the individual to government. And the more we shift responsibility to government, the less freedom we will always have. And what happens is we, as a culture, we have voluntarily given ourselves to tyranny and to uh, control of, of uh, government. Scripture teaches key principles that we've studied, that it is the responsibility of the individual. Um, in Second Thessalonians 3, verses 10 through 12, we have the principle that those who don't eat don't, those who don't work, don't eat. The Bible emphasizes the fact that, if, that we're to be compassionate, though, to the poor. No matter what that reason may be, we studied that last time. We are to be compassionate to the poor. We have limited resources. We have responsibilities to determine how we are going to utilize that to, for, for the poor. But it's the responsibility of the individual, not the responsibility of government. So in the last few minutes, let me sort of bring this to a something of a conclusion before we get back into our forward movement in Acts. Earlier, I mentioned two of the most widely known uh, social socialist Christians, evangelicals, so-called evangelicals in our culture. The one who really started this and was one of the foremost was Ron Sider. In his book *Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger*, which uh, was quite popular. Uh, in the late '70s, I remember seeing it at Dallas Seminary and also many Christian college campuses all over uh, all over the U.S. And in his introduction, he sets forth a problem. And you've heard this problem. I've heard our current president use it, set up this same problem. This is a typical scenario that you will hear from many liberals in order to make you feel guilty. That you have prosperity, and that you spend money on things that most people in the world can 't have here 's the scenario. He says the food crisis is only the visible tip of the of the iceberg. More fundamental problems lurk just below the surface. Sorry for the typos in this it didn 't uh, paste well um, More fundamental problems lurk just below the surface. Most serious is the, notice the value word here, the unjust division of the earth's food and resources. Now that word unjust, what do you you think when you see that word? That implies some sort of external standard. Well, whose standard is he using? Where did he get the standard? It's not my standard. I don't think it's anybody's standard here. Uh, Whose standard is it? Where is he getting this idea? It's not a biblical standard. It's not the standard of justice or righteousness that's in the Torah. Most serious is the unjust division of the earth's food and resources. He, blaming God, he put oil in Saudi Arabia, but he didn't put oil in Israel. Poor Israel. But they're discovering a few things there. He put oil in Texas, but he didn't put oil in Massachusetts. So they get to steal our oil. Is that, is that right? That's garbage. 30% of the world's population lives in developed countries, but this minority of less than one-third... I really love this. I want you all to feel guilty when you read this. 30% of the world's population lives in developed countries, but this minority of less than one-third eats three-quarters of the world's protein each year. Less than 6% of the world's population lives in the United States, but we regularly demand about... We demand... 33% 33% of, the mo- of most minerals and energy consumed every year. Americans use 191 times as much energy per person as the average Nigerian. Air conditioners alone in the United States use as much energy each year as does the entire country of China annually with its 830 million people. I want Ron Sider to come to Houston next summer, and I want him to try to live all summer without an air conditioner. See, this is utopic. It's completely unrealistic. It has no, no contact whatsoever with the real world. Um, One-third of the world's people have an annual per capita income of $100 or less. In the United States, it's now about 5600 He wrote this in 82, uh, so the numbers would be a little bit higher now. In the United States, it's now about 5600 per person, and this difference increases every year. See, the, he's blaming the rich, but, but what, what is not said here? It's really important to notice some of the things that are not not stated here. One thing is he focuses on that protein issue right up there where he says 30% are, wait a minute, he says, but this minority of less than one-third eats three-quarters of the world's protein each year. However, a 1982 study by that extremely objective Conservative right wing institution known as the United States Department of Agriculture. You're supposed to laugh a little bit. Published a study the same year his book came out, or, or a year or so later, that said the low income Americans, the people who liberation theologians supposedly want to deliver from the uh, oppressive institutions, eat more meat per capita than high income Americans. In other words, the poor people that he's complaining about here that don't get protein, it's the poor people in America who are eating most of the protein, not the rich people in America. The rich people in America eat much less protein and less meat than the poor do. In fact, the Department of Agriculture study pointed out that uh, blacks in America consume more meat per capita than other racial groups. Thus, this whole idea that uh, Cider brings up about less meat, uh, would reduce one of the prime pleasures that poor people in America have and is trying to get a good steak. Unquestionably, there is a reality that uh, third world countries do have protein deficiencies, but that's connected to a lot of other issues and a lot of other factors. Trying to change a culture's diet, for example, in India... Well, let's just take something easy. Let's try to change your diet. You've tried. I've tried. That's not easy. You try to change the diet in a culture, you're going to have have major problems. P.T. Bauer, this is a study I referred to earlier, P.T. Bauer, the London School of Economics, made a study of uh, uh, economic development in in countries uh, part of his life's work. He emphasized what most economists should be aware of, but they ignore, and that is that in the long run, people's attitudes towards life, their belief system, is more important for economic growth than money. In other words, he discovered this economist, he's not a pastor, he's not a theologian, he's an economist. And he's doing all the charts and all the diagrams and everything, and he discovers that people's belief system is more important in determining their prosperity and their affluence than money. He ca- listed, uh, he came up with a list of ideas and attitudes which Western countries should look at. And people who have these ideas and values should not be subsidized by foreign aid from Western countries. So if these things characterize a, a third world country, then they shouldn't receive any aid from the West at all because it's just a waste. Whether they have it or not, they're not going to improve. One reason is that it's not pointed out from this vantage point, is that these, these are in socialist countries and all that happens is we give all this aid and the government gets richer and the people stay poor. It never goes directly to the people. But he has an interesting list of things. Now, pay attention to this list. These are things that, if it characterizes a culture, we shouldn't give them money. First of all, a lack of interest in material advance combined with resignation in the face of poverty. In other words, they're poor. We've always been poor. The last 50 generations have been poor. The next 50 will be because it's the will of Allah. Don't give them any money. Second, lack of initiative, self-reliance, and a sense of personal responsibility for the economic future of oneself and one's family. It's karma. It's the will of Allah. Third, high leisure preference, together with the lassitude found in tropical climates. They'd rather sit around and uh, play checkers than work all day, have a long siesta. Fourth, relatively high prestige of passive or contemplative life compared to an active life. Now that's clearly a spiritual principle. They would rather sit around and just contemplate their navel. That's of higher value in their culture than working. Fifth, the prestige of mysticism and a renunciation of the world compared to acquisition and achievement. Anybody name what religion that would be? And what country? Tibet comes to mind. Acceptance of the idea of a preordained, unchanging, and unchangeable universe. That applies to any number of Eastern religions. Emphasis on performance of duties and acceptance of obligation rather than on achievement of results or assertion of even a recognition of personal rights. That applies to numerous non-Judeo-Christian religions. Lack of sustained curiosity, experimentation, and interest in change. Um, Belief in the efficacy of the supernatural and occult forces and of their influence over one's destiny, animism. All you know. This would, would apply to numerous polytheistic and pantheistic cultures in Africa. The insistence on the unity of the organic universe, monism, and on the need to live with nature rather than conquer it or harness it to man's needs, an attitude of which reluctance to take animal life is a corollary. Think about India. Half of the grain in India is consumed by the rats, Just think about what a waste that is. How many people are hungry because they won't kill those little god rats. Belief in perpetual reincarnation which reduces the significance of effort in the course of the present life. The recognized status of beggary together with a lack of stigma in the acceptance of charity. And then last, opposition to women's work outside the home. Now, Uh, You take all these things, you're talking about Buddhism, Islam, you're talking about Hinduism, Taoism, all of the Eastern religions. What is it that makes a difference between poor countries and wealthy countries? Let me see. The wealthy countries were all influenced by a Judeo-Christian work ethic. It came through from Judaism. It came through in Roman Catholicism as the uh, uh, monasteries in in Europe would make wine. They would make other things and they would trade, and that developed into the mercantile system. What we see again and again is that modern liberalism wants to go back to a system that is built on a completely fraudulent false view of human nature. Those are the, the two basic problems that they have is is a failure to understand the nature of man as being fallen and therefore the natural inclination of man is away from responsibility. And then their idea of, uh, of utopia, that we can produce a perfect Culture. Those two things go uh, hand in hand, and ultimately, what they have done is they have rejected, they have rejected the truth of God and the existence of God. And when they do that, the result is a collapse of their prosperity, their economics, their food provision system, everything. It goes away, and they're taken advantage of by corrupt. Leaders, but they don't believe in corruption. So the Bible gives us a framework, and we ought to use that when we think about who we're going to vote for in coming elections. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that ultimately in the economics of reality we have true redemption, the payment of a price for our salvation in Jesus Christ. And all those economic terms, expiation, uh, redemption, All these terms that are used, uh, cancellation of sin, forgiveness, all these terms relate also to what happened at the cross, where Jesus paid the price of our sin, so that because that is paid, and if we trust in Christ alone, we have true freedom, and we are given the riches of Christ. And now, Father, we just pray that you would help us as we go forward to recognize that we do have responsibility and accountability in all of these areas, and that once we violate that and start looking to someone else to solve our problems, that that begins the slippery slope into the self-destruction and the destruction of a culture. And we pray for our nation. We pray for wisdom to leaders that men and women would rise up who understand these truths and would be willing to serve and to lead and to be a a real beacon for the future that we might correct the problems that we have and that we might go forward uh, and regain uh, the prosperity and the wealth that we have in this nation. Not because we deserve it, but because we we will work for it And we will build our system upon these eternal absolutes that you have built into creation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.